0: To turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Today we are continuing in this series of messages on the parables of Jesus and we're looking today in this fourth message, the parable of the workers or laborers in the vineyard. You'll find the parable in Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 16. Matt just read the parable a few moments ago. And so I want to just recap so that you catch the salient uh, facts of this particular story, this parable, this story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus said when he was trying to explain about the coming kingdom that God's kingdom is like a man who had a vineyard, and that vineyard needed to be harvested. So the man went out early in the morning to the marketplace and he hired some workers and agreed to pay them for their day's work one denarius for the entire day. They agreed to the contract and so they went out into the vineyard to work. At mid-morning, according to Jesus' parable, the master of the vineyard looked over his vineyard and sees that there were more workers that were needed in order to get the job completed. So he goes back to the marketplace where he encounters some men who are still standing around looking for work, wanting something to do, and so he hires them. Even though a third of the day is now over, the landowner asks these men to go to work for him, and he tells them that he will pay them what is right. At noontime, he returns to the downtown area, and he sees some guys hanging out on the street corner, and he invites them to work in his vineyard, telling them that he will pay them what is right. At three in the afternoon, he's back downtown, where he spies a couple of young men doing absolutely nothing, And even though the sun is beginning to move toward the far west, he thinks to himself, why not? So he hires them and he promises to pay them what is right. At 5 p.m., or the 11th hour of the typical Jewish workday, he goes back to town one last time. Now, there's almost no one left loitering on the street. After all, the day is almost over. But apparently, according to Jesus' parable, there are two slackers who are standing there leaning up against the wall of the unemployment office sharing a bottle of Snapple. And even though it's only one hour before quitting time, he decides to hire them as well. Now, if you're keeping score, by the end of the day, we have different groups of workers out there in the master's vineyard who have been there, some for 12 hours, some for nine, some for six, some for three, and a few for only one. Now, they all will be paid. If you will recall, at the beginning of Jesus' story, Jesus tells the workers who got there first, that he would agree to pay them one denarius. But this peripatetic employer, instead of doing what Jewish tradition calls for and pay the first first, decides that instead he will pay the last first. And to everyone's amazement, he pays those who have only worked one hour, he pays them a denarius. So the other workers who have worked all day are kind of wringing their hands with glee, thinking that certainly if those who worked one hour got one denarius, certainly we who have worked 12 hours, well, we'll probably get 12 denarii. Right? Wrong. Those who started at the early morning hours and labored under the hot noonday sun, they got what they agreed to work for. One denarius. And whether the calls of injustice were outright and heard, or whether they were silent in the hearts of of those who had started early in the morning, there are murmurings among the union that this is not right. It's unjust. And they think to themselves, this is no way to run a vineyard. And the landowner says, you're calling me unfair, but don't I have the right to do with my money what I want to do? You agreed to work for one denarius, and I have met my contractual obligation to you. You have been given a denarius. So stop your grumbling. I have to tell you honestly that when I was a kid, in the Elder Free Methodist Church, and Hazel Robson taught this parable that I wanted to tell her what I thought about this. My parents had taught me fair play. And I didn't like this story very much because it struck to me at the heart of fairness and justice. It didn't sound right to my childlike mind. It didn't seem very fair. Because I knew that in the real world, that hard work is supposed to be rewarded, right? If you work hard, you will be rewarded for your hard work. I realize now that it's my pride that makes me think that way. I want to at times say, but God, it isn't fair. I've been in church all these years. I went on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and Bible school and prayer meeting. I've served you all my life. It's not right that somebody who squeaks by in the 11th hour gets the same reward that I do. It's not right that the thief on the cross should receive the same as the one who diligently serves day in and day out over the course of a lifetime of service. And according to our human perspective, we would have some basis for that. But we must remember that this parable of Jesus is not about rewards. Rewards, in fact, is what Peter asked about in the previous chapter, in chapter 19. But here in chapter 20, Jesus disabuses Peter of this silly notion of rewards. And he says to Peter, Peter, you've got it all backwards. The whole point, Peter, is grace. And grace is measured out. The same to each. And each receives the usual daily wage for a day's labor. In my opinion, we deeply need this parable in these difficult economic times in which you and I are living. These are times when the whole country and even the world looks like It's going to fall apart because of the greed and the avarice and the corruption that seem to abound on every side. Add to that that I think that we live in a world that is very much a world of tit for tat. The same old retribution that reared its ugly head in the Old Testament book of Job. The whole book of Job is about how retribution is not the case in God's economy In fact, in the book of Job, you find God Himself showing up to answer Job's plea. And now we know on this side of the cross that God doesn't deal in retribution, but instead, praise be to His name, God deals with you and I in grace. And because of Jesus, because of His Perfect sacrifice on Calvary. You and I are able to think differently and be a part of an entirely different kingdom. One that stands in sharp contrast to this tit-for-tat world. And we can say, it's about grace. But it occurs to me that even though our faith is one that is based in the good grace of God, that you and I are not very good at living in grace. It's been said that Christianity is supremely a religion of grace, and that is certainly true. But even so, the grace of God, I don't think, is well understood. And I think for many Christians, even though we say the words and we say we believe it, we really don't do very well at living it out. In his wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey, if you've not read it, you should. Philip points out that part of our problem is in the nature of grace itself. Grace is scandalous. Grace is hard to accept. It's hard to believe. It's, it's hard to receive. Grace Shocks us when we really think about it. It shocks us in what it offers to us. It's truly out of this world. It frightens us with what it does for sinners. Grace teaches us that God does for others what we would never do for them. I admit it. Oh, I guess I might be willing to save the not so bad people. But where does God start? God starts by saving the prostitutes and the publicans, the people who've been cast off by the world, and He works downward from there. Grace is a gift that costs everything to the giver, but costs nothing to the receiver. Grace is given to people like you and me who don't deserve it and can't earn it, who barely recognize it, and hardly appreciate it. And that is, my brothers and sisters, why God alone gets the glory in our salvation, because it's not about you and me, but it's all about the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It's grace. It's absolute grace, undeserved grace, unlimited, unbounded, unmerited, undivided, unpaybackable. Unbackable payable. Just pretend it's a word. It's utter grace. It's consummate grace. And if that isn't enough, the grace of God is its luminous. It's shimmering. It's exuberant. It's radiant. It's festive. It's magnificent. It's iridescent. My thesaurus couldn't find any other words. So I'll use Newton's. The grace of God in Jesus is absolutely amazing. It's amazing grace. but we don't live in it very well. We kill ourselves with the law. I know that we do because so often we say, I should have done. I ought to have done. I must do. You're guilty. Nod your head. So am I. We don't live in grace very well. Have you ever gone to bed at night and think to yourself, oh, oh, I didn't get enough done today. That's why we ought to take a Sabbath rest every week. This last week, our pastors and, and part of our staff served on the staff of one of our Edinburgh youth camps. We worked long days. We're all bushed. I didn't get a Sabbath. Neither did our other pastors. But... This week I can take two Sabbaths. I won't. But I should. And on that Sabbath I can live in grace and say hooray! I don't have to do anything today. I don't have to do anything. And that's what grace is. I don't have to do anything to earn this wonderful gift of God's grace. Grace has saved me. Grace has forgiven me. Grace has adopted me into the family. Grace has given me the grace gifts that empower me and all of you who are Christ followers to To minister to this broken world, grace has given us a wonderful vineyard owner who brings some of us in at the eleventh hour and says, Here's my grace. It was the great German reformer Martin Luther who taught that first there is the law and then there is the gospel. And it is the law of God that drives us to the Gospel. That is to say that when you and I understand the horrible shape that we're in without Jesus Christ in our life, without the Savior and the Mediator, without the Peacekeeper Jesus Christ, when we understand how corrupt and depraved we are, that when we get full-face 2020 20, vision of how horrible and stained with sin our heart really is, that we are then driven to the good news of Jesus Christ, to him who delivers us out of our bondage and who has made peace with God possible, and there at the cross of Jesus you and I by faith can experience the super the superabundance of God's grace. And there at the cross, you and I are set free. Set free from the prison house of sin. But more importantly, I think, we've been set free from ourselves. And we've been set free from all of our idiot-syncrasies. Yes, you heard me right. Our idiot-syncrasies. We are a people who have been delivered by grace. And some of us were hired into the vineyard at an early hour. And some have been hired just within the hour. And we all get the same wage. And we take it with a heart of rejoicing. And there ends the story. And Jesus caps it off by saying in verse 16, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. It should be on the screen behind me. Let's read it aloud together. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. There's only one way to understand That statement, and it is this If the first are last and the last are first, then everybody's the same. It really isn't all that difficult. It's simply saying all those who come to faith in Christ, whether you're first or last, receive the same the grace of God. There are no first place finishers, no second, third, fourth. There's no booby prize. In the kingdom of God, position doesn't matter. God shows no partiality. He has no favorites. In God's economy, things are just the opposite of what we would expect. And it seems to me that that's what makes us sometimes, people like me, uncomfortable with grace. Because I want to think like I bring something to the table. I want to earn it. I want to do something to to get this gift of grace. And I find it disturbing at times. Even scandalous. But here comes grace. Offering to people at the third The 6th, the ninth, the 11th hour, a fresh start, a new beginning, a do-over. That's what grace is all about. No one is first, no one is last. I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. I'm not any worse than you and you're no worse than me. We're all covered. Those of us who have claimed Christ and have sought to follow Him, We're all covered by the grace of Christ. And that's why I think Jesus uses such radical language in verse 16 about the first and the last. But I also want you to notice that the last verse of chapter 19, the chapter that precedes chapter 20 where this parable is contained... In the verse immediately preceding this parable, Jesus says, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What's interesting about this parable is that it's actually bracketed by the same thought, although the first and the last are all blurred together. He changes the order, the first and the last, the last and the first. It's as if Jesus is making the point that the first and last don't matter anymore in the kingdom of God. Grace is not about finishing first, but it's not about finishing last. Grace is not counting at all. It's about not keeping score. It's about having a do-over, a fresh start, whenever you want it. And, and the more you feel, this is the beautiful thing about grace, the more you feel the need for grace, the better candidate for grace you are. And all you need to do is to come to God in the name of Jesus and hold out your empty hands and say to God, Oh God, I need your grace. And this wonderful owner of the vineyard will not turn you away. In fact, Isaiah the prophet said, Though your sins are as scarlet, this vineyard owner will make them as white as snow. And that's the miracle. That's the wonder. That's the scandal. The shock of God's grace. It's truly out of this world. It's good news for sinners. Free grace. Free grace. Free grace. We need to shout it. We need to sing it. We need to tell it. We need to share it. And above all, we need to believe in it. For in believing in this wonderful, amazing grace, we are saved. So says the Apostle when he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved. It's the gift of God. It's not of yourselves. So that none of you can boast, it is God's gift to you. And my dear brothers and sisters, it seems to me that when we get to heaven, on that farther shore, there will be no contest to see who was the most deserving of God's grace. Because none of us deserve it. There will only be one contest in heaven. Ever think about this? One contest in heaven. When we look back and see what we were before God found us and saved us, when we recall how spiritually confused we were before Christ met us, when we remember how God through Christ reached out His loving hand toward us and hired us into His vineyard. And when we see Jesus who loved us and gave Himself up for us, the only contest that there'll be in heaven is to see which one of us can sing the loudest. Amazing grace! How sweet the sound That saved a wretch like me. Finish it with me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And when we all get to heaven, we will finally understand that it's not about our doing. It's not about our faithfulness, although faithfulness and obedience and holiness and all of those things happen, it occurs to me that Martin Luther was right, that the law comes first and then the gospel, but then follows that then a desire for us to live a holy life that's pleasing, where God is shaping and molding us into the likeness of Jesus. But it's all about grace. So that works, our length of service, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 80 years, duties done. When it comes to our salvation, those things really don't matter. Now, I know the epistles speak a bit about rewards. And I know some of you are going to push back on that. So I'm, I'm putting out my caveat right now. I understand that the epistles talk about rewards. But it's not rewards that have to do with our salvation. Our salvation is based solely upon grace. That's why the Reformers said, Soli gratia. Grace alone. It's not about your membership in the church. It's not about your faithful attendance. It's not about the number of prayers that you've prayed. It's not about your service in the kingdom. The one thing, the only thing that gets you into the fold is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So instead of exalting yourself and kind of putting out your puffed chest and saying I'm such a great person because I've been serving the Lord now for 40 years or 50 years, Instead of thinking about, like the disciples did, arguing about who will have that great place in the coming kingdom, why not humble yourself and thank God that in His magnanimity, He's given all of us who have trusted in Him by faith, He's given all of us the same wage. His amazing grace. And different as we are and diverse as we are, we come here and we share together equally. No matter how long you've worked in the kingdom, no matter how hard or easy your circumstances in life have been, no matter how difficult the tasks that are before you, when you get to the end of life's way, will all, all of us who are trusting in Christ alone, we're all going to receive the same eternal life. Isn't that a great truth? And that's really what this parable is all about. Some people serve Christ their whole life long. Some people for just a brief moment. Can you imagine how those workers who had worked 12 hours in the blazing sun felt? when these guys show up at 5 o'clock when the breezes come up and it's twilight and there's only an hour for them to go around the hill and collect some grapes and get the same amount that we get. But that's how it is in the kingdom of God, friends. We all get the same. We all enter into the same eternal life. We all inherit the same glories in heaven. And that is the essence and the principle of what Jesus is saying, that no matter how easy or hard our lot in life has been, no matter how long or short our service has been, that the penitent thief will inherit the same eternal reward as the apostles and the martyrs inherit. And in our human and limited perspective, we might want to cry out and say, but it isn't fair! But then we remember how good His grace is that lets a 'er ne'er-do-well like me come into His vineyard. And not only me, but any who would hear and respond to His kind invitation, won't you come and work for me I'll show you my grace. And you will be satisfied. Would you stand together and let's pray. Before we pray, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I I want to just say a pastoral word to you today. I don't know how this particular message about this particular parable has come to your heart and how the Spirit of God may be applying it in your life. I trust, because of the promise of God, that when the word is preached and declared that it will not return to God void, I trust that there is an application that's very direct in your life. As for me, as I enter into the Scripture today, my own response is to give thanks to God that He would take somebody like me and give me an equal inheritance to those who have been more faithful than I, who have worked harder than I, who have been serving longer than I, who have served under greater stress than I, And that he would give me his grace and that it would satisfy my soul. I want to say, thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. It also prompts me to remember that there are others who have worked less, fewer years, with less diligence. And I bless God for his wonderful grace, which is demonstrated in such superabundance in the lives of people who even come in at the 11th hour Because that reveals what a gracious God we serve. And it makes me want to give him glory. But perhaps this morning, this text reaches you at a different place. For some of you, it ought to be a time to ask yourself whether, really, you are in the kingdom, in the vineyard, or not if you're a recipient of God's amazing grace or not. Or if perhaps you're still standing on the street corner, hearing the landowner inviting you to come and work for him, and it may be even five o'clock in your life and he's calling you, but you're resisting him at every turn. You're standing outside the place of blessing, never knowing his great grace never receiving the gift of eternal life. I beg you in the name of Jesus, don't let another moment pass by before you come empty-handed to Christ and invite Him into your heart and life and allow Him to give you a fresh start. Because it's all about grace. Amazing grace. And for this grace, O oh God, in Christ, we give you thanks, and pray that, that indeed, Lord, for those of us who've been recipients of it, that we would just that there would be a swelling up of gratitude and thanksgiving unto you for your amazing grace, and that for others, Lord, who are still seeking, wanting to find and to be satisfied, that you will prompt something within their heart to open their heart and life up and faith will be fanned into flame and that you will draw them to yourself and save them into your kingdom. How amazing your grace is.